Deadwood Soundwell. Hello, and welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Peltz, a certified animal behavior consultant. I would like you to be able to contact me with any questions you may have regarding particularly behavior issues, but I can address other things as well. One of my favorites is nutrition. So we're here to help you, and Nate will tell you how to get your questions to us. To get your questions to us, just email livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. That's livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. And also, you can find Living With Your Dog on Facebook. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Hi, welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Pelt, Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. I frequently hear people discussing heartworm preventative. Is it necessary or is it not? And here's something that was written in July by Dr. Judy Morgan. And listeners know I'm a huge fan of Dr. Morgan. And she says, as a holistic veterinarian, I'm often asked which natural preventative I recommend for heartworm prevention. This is always a tricky question because there are so many variables that come into play. While there are websites that warn against the use of any and all chemicals in or on our pets, I often question whether it's possible in all environments to have our pets be completely chemical free. It is a great goal that we must face the realities of the polluted world in which we live, creating daily health stressors that contribute to compromised immune function. And before I continue with this, what she's saying here reminds me of what Dr. Billinghurst was saying in our interview with him about all of the pollutants that are out there. And he ranks nutrition very, very high up on the level, but not the only thing that contributes immensely in a negative way to our poor canines. Okay, so she says, factors to consider when deciding whether to give heartworm prevention might include environmental temperature. Heartworms are spread by mosquitoes. A female mosquito must bite an infected canine. The immature larvae are ingested and live in the salivary glands of the mosquito where they mature in about two weeks as long as the environmental temperature remains above 57 degrees Fahrenheit around the clock. That's an important bit of information. Remember that, folks. 57 degrees above Fahrenheit around the clock. There are some areas of the world where the temperature temperatures do not remain warm enough for a long enough period of time to allow this process to occur. There must be a reservoir of infected canines for mosquitoes to feed on, and mosquitoes survive best in high humidity. Most cases of heartworm occur in the Mississippi River Valley and southeastern United States. I do understand that it has been found in all states, but this is where she's true. She's right. Most of them there. There are many natural ways to minimize mosquito populations. Bats and purple martins eat very few mosquitoes. Their main predators are fish and dragonflies. Eliminate standing water. Mosquitoes spend the first 10 days of their life in water. Bacteria can be used to kill mosquito larvae. Bacillus thuringiensis israelensis, BTI, is a commercially produced bacteria sold in pellet and powder form that can be laced into water where larvae live. It produces proteins that turn into toxins after the larvae eat it. 
Be careful if you have uh, ponds with fish in it. You can't use this stuff if you have that. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. 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 Okay. Dark clothing attracts mosquitoes, as will dark coats on animals. Lightweight white fly netting can be used to keep mosquitoes away. Commonly used as horse blankets to keep flies away in the summer. Mosquito traps with attractants can kill thousands of mosquitoes per night. A healthy dog with a healthy immune system will have decreased risk of development of adult heartworms, a process that takes seven to nine months from the time the mosquito bites. A healthy immune system will recognize heartworm larvae as foreign invaders mounting an attack that can successfully defeat the invasion. Unfortunately, very few dogs have a fully functioning healthy immune system mm -hmm. due to over-vaccination, overuse of medications and chemicals, and poor quality nutrition found in many commercial diets. If you are considering skipping heartworm prevention, make sure you know the facts about heartworm prevalence in your area. Heartworm preventatives do not need to be given year-round in many locations based on environmental temperature. Don't blindly accept the recommendation to give chemicals year-round if you live in an area that has cold winters. In my clinic, the only preventative we carry is Interceptor, which contains mildimacin. Some clients opt for Sentinel, which also contains Sentinel Spectrum, which also contain a tapeworm dewormer, Praziquantel. Unless your pet has chronic flea infestations, they will not have chronic tapeworm infestation. Beware of products containing moxidectin, a particularly dangerous chemical dewormer. Long-lasting injections may seem convenient, but once given, there is no antidote to reverse side effects, which may include the following adverse reactions, anaphylaxis, vomiting, diarrhea with and without blood, listlessness, weight loss, seizures, and death. If you are interested in learning more about keeping your pet's immune system healthy to help ward off heartworms and other parasites, naturally check out an ebook that's available at her site. I think this is particularly interesting because I remember, I'm sure it's still going on, that locally uh, that is prescribing heartworms to be done all year. Oh, we've got mosquitoes all year. Well, anyone who has lived in Southern Humboldt County knows that we get chilly winters and we have to have 57 degrees for 24 hours for these mosquitoes to, to live long enough. So I don't think it's necessary. There are certainly areas like the, the Southwest, the, the, uh, the Southeast, the Southern part of the United States, the Mississippi Valley, where the conditions are absolutely perfect for mosquitoes. What I've decided to do, and I'm not a vet and I'm not recommending it, I'm only telling you what I've decided to do. Since I take my dog in for complete blood panels twice a year, and since she says they take six months to develop, I figure I will have the blood work done, including a heartworm test at the same time. Now, if there is something detected at that point, they will have only been there for a short period of time, and then the preventatives will kill them. They're not heartworms any longer, they're just larvae. So instead of me giving her a chemical, I'm going to work with this situation as I see it with the, the twice annual blood work that uh, because of her age, I think that's the appropriate thing to do for, for younger dogs annually. But she's a senior, She's 10 plus, 
And I think that this is the program that I'm going to follow. So far, it's working. Uh, and I just thought I'd pass that along to you. <clears throat> so you do not give your dog heartworm medication all year round. And, I don't give it to her at all. <laughs> you don't give it to her at all, but you would if in one of these twice annual blood work tests that they find something. If they find the larva, it's my understanding that the, the, the preventative can kill the larva. They can't it, kill heartworms. They can't kill heartworms. Okay. But they will not have developed into heartworms in that period, that short period of time. There, there could be larva. And, and then from what I understand, the preventatives will kill the larva. So she could be taken care of if they detect larva in, in her blood work. Okay, but that's not necessarily going to be the case if I only take my dog in once a year. Right? That's right. They could, they could be developed already into the heartworm. Now, w would I see signs of heartworm externally, or is this something that only can be detected by a test? Once you get, once a dog gets to the heartworm stage, oh, you'll see signs because they're likely to be coughing. There may be edema in the uh, in the the chest area. So there, the heart. And once the worms are in the heart, and they can become pretty long, from what I understand, you know, six. I don't know, six eight inches long. Wow. Um, they, they are definitely causing a problem. And heartworm surgery and heartworm treatment, you can't kill them in the heart with preventatives, from what I understand, because they're just going to block the heart. So it's a very serious issue if the dog develops heartworm. But we're talking in terms of addressing the larvae, in my case with her, and every six months uh, blood work. But if you're living in an area where... They they are a big problem, like the south the south of the southeast of the United States. Uh, I don't think there's any choice, and I agree with Dr. Judy Morgan. It would be nice if we could eliminate these toxins that we put into our dogs, but that isn't always the case. So um, this is what I've done with her. And as <laughs> and as was said, uh, because of the dogs deteriorate all dogs deteriorating immune system, they're more susceptible to these issues. Yes, wow. absolutely. And that's all part of over vaccinating. It's part of poor nutrition. It's we're compromising our dog's immune systems with our lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> And certainly if there are still smokers in your household, uh, the dogs and particularly the cats, because the smoke settles on their hair and they clean themselves regularly. Oh, so right. they re re really become um, secondary smoke affected animals. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't Very even thought of that. Thing. Yeah. <clears throat> that makes sense. We've talked about that with like spraying chemicals on your sofa and stuff like that absolutely you know that we come with fire retardants and we come with what's put in there to clean them and right. on and on and on yeah. and the dogs and the cats walk on it and they lie on it and so on and so forth and um, they lick themselves and then it gets yeah. inside of them wow, wow. yeah uh -huh. right okay from dr zacy todd finding happiness in the small moments of joy with your pet <laughs> Sometimes when you turn on the news, it just feels like everything is too much. Yep. Like right now, when I was browsing the news on Twitter, there was so much bad news from here and everywhere. Yeah. 
-hmm. With the pandemic plowing on and the climate crisis revving up, it feels like we are stuck with more of this without a lot of hard work to change it. The new M&S and Ghost collection has dropped. From then I glanced out of the window where the trees have grown so tall I can no longer see the sky from this vantage point. And five yellow warblers were flicking from branch to branch, little flashes of yellow amongst the green, hopping and flitting and then flying to the next tree. They are just going about their day and yet it brings me joy to see them. <laughs> Which brings me to these lines from a poem which I came across on Maria Popova's Brain Pickings. They are from a Jane Hirschfield's The Weighing. So few grains of happiness measured against all the dark and still the scales balance. Popova calls this an ode to resilience. She writes that what Popova explores in this poem is that, this is a quote, perhaps the deepest measure of our character, of our very humanity, is how much we go on giving when what we most value is taken from us, when a loved one withholds their love, when the world withdraws its mercy. End of quote. In the face of constant bad news, resilience has never been more important. And while we know there can be downsides to having a pet, hopefully there are also many moments of joy. Those everyday small moments are worth savoring, especially at times when your dog or cat has either a momentary maddening lapse or some kind of longer-term behavior issue, it's important to remember the things you love about them, too. Think about the things you love, the moments that bring you joy, and the pleasure you take in the things that bring them joy. The joy of feeling your pet's fur and the weight of her head on your arm or leg, or when you lie on your side at night, the cat snuggling into you and purring softly. Thank you, Melina. The joy of a cat sprawled out on a rug showing their tummy to the sun through a window. Harley. <laughs> the joy of flinging their favorite rope toy around or bouncing up and down at the return home of their person. For a little dog, it's amazing how high Pepper leaps. I still miss how when I was working at my desk, Ghost would come and put his big, heavy head on my arm and blink at me with his ice blue, almost white eyes. I would have to drop what I was doing to see what he wanted. I also miss seeing Ghost tap dancing with impatience and delight when he saw some of his favorite people walking towards him and the sheer joy with which Bodger would run around the room with his rope in his mouth. Even past moments of joy bring more happiness in their memories, it seems. All these things are worth savoring. I don't mean to imply that we shouldn't do anything about these terrible things in the news. <clears throat> we absolutely should get vaccinated, wear a mask, vote, and act with issues like climate change and systemic racism, etc. in mind in order to enjoy more moments of joy but we have to take care of ourselves in the process. If you're having a hard time or a hard time with your pet, remember to notice those moments that bring peace and happiness. Savor them, make more of them if you can. Some dog trainers and animal behaviorists, myself included, always make a point to ask not only what are the issues you want to work on with your pet, but also why do you love them? What do you enjoy about them? Because it helps to see the whole picture to weigh the good with the bad. And when coming up with a plan for a behavior issue, it helps to make sure to protect the good, to make more of it even as part of the plan. Sometimes we get in a routine with our pets and it's easy to stop paying attention to get sucked into other things, but your pet is still there, entirely reliant on you for their moments of joy. And it's so much fun to be able to provide them. What are the small moments with your pet that make you happy? 
And then she says also, see why dogs happiness, not obedience is what counts. And, and she's also got her book, WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy. That's, that's a great um, blog from Dr. Zazie Todd. Happiness. What was that last one? Happiness is what counts? Yeah, it's WAG. Right. Is um, the science of making your dog happy. <clears throat> okay. And it, you can it, sign it, up. That's for, what it was. It was happiness is more important than obedience. It was something like that. I love that. Uh, why dog's happiness, not obedience, is what counts. Yes. That's yes. a great quote. Yeah, and and you can sign up for Companion Animal Psychology, which uh, it's not going to flood your your email inbox. Trust me, it's worth it. She's very good. <clears throat> oh, that's 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 a super good article, especially for these days. She's so right. There's so much crap going on in the world right now, but pets. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have pets is to brighten up our lives. Now, granted, Absolutely. that Absolutely. sounds a little uh, <laughs> self. A little, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a little conceited, but well, as long as you treat your dog right, then you work both ways. They help Absolutely. you, you help them. That's right, and that's the important part. And I think it's it's really well stated how we have to remember, we have to remind ourselves to keep in front of our minds how important they are to us, and not just assume, you know. It's, 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 it's a good message. It's a so, good message. So uh, when she says, you know, <laughs> savor those small moments, do you have a small moment with your dog that, that you're something that your dog does that she just absolutely I love? I really love it when uh, she snuggles up to me in bed at night. <laughs> now, I must say that she periodically will pick the spot at the foot of the bed, right where I really want to put my legs. <clears throat> and I haven't got, the heart to nudge her away from that spot. <laughs> I just can't do it. Uh, so so great. I curl up in places that don't really feel right to me, but I love when she will. And she's so funny because she'll sometimes when I'm lying on my side, she'll get up and she'll really round herself right off against my stomach. And I think that's really a good girl. <laughs> <laughs> Is she very affectionate at other times? Or she, yeah, she likes, she likes her pets and her, you know, pats and scratches. Yes. Okay. Yeah, she does. She likes that. So I know some dogs don't always like that, but then that's right. When they come yes. to sleep time or something, they'll come around and they'll snuggle. Yeah. And, and this is, this is an important point to make Nate, because people so often believe that petting their dog is reinforcing good behavior, that it makes their dogs feel wonderful and it doesn't always work right it isn't something that all dogs really relish the other thing is even if your dog likes you to pet them you hand it out on a regular basis why would they want or think they should work for it <laughs> so it's important to give those food treats and other ways to reinforce behavior that you want to have repeated and the reason we use food to start with, which is worth mentioning, is we can dole out a whole lot of tiny little treats in a minute or two's time, whereas the beloved belly rub or the walk around the block or the ride in the car, it doesn't work so well on a very quick basis. So it's as we progress through 
securing a desired behavior, and we get to like the 85 percentile bracket for a specific set of conditions, let's say no distractions in the kitchen for sit, then we're going to start changing from the treats, the food treats for it, to what a good girl, or let's go for a walk, or here's your bone, or any number of other things, but periodically coming up with the food so that they are able to win the lottery <laughs> so that they'll work harder for it. But if you, and the, the, the interesting thing is if you to keep up with food treats after they have surpassed that 85 percentile bracket or so, the behavior is likely to deteriorate as compared to them having to figure out why they didn't get the food this time and working a little harder for it while you're also dispensing other forms of reinforcement, presuming your dog likes a scratch and a pat. If they don't like it, you're not reinforcing it. Wait, wait, did you just say that it's possible for us to be giving too many treats? Yes. Once you're, if you're using it to train, Uh let's say I'm, I'm training my dog to sit at the door before going out, we've already mastered the kitchen. So we're now it's sitting at the door and you don't get to go through the door until I've given you permission. When the dog is at the 85 percentile bracket of waiting for permission, then I'll sometimes just say, okay, let's go. The dog I know is reliable at that level. So the reward for having sat is still to go out the door. It may not be for the required amount of time that we worked on intermittent time levels at the beginning. So when you get to the 85 percentile bracket of success in a given set of distractions or a given location, it's time to change to random reinforcement or different types of reinforcement. Random reinforcement. Yeah. And that's instead of it being food, it's going to be good girl. It's going to be a scratch along the the cheek line. It's going to be jumping up and down and tossing a toy. It's any number of things that the dog likes, but periodically surprise them with a really tasty treat. So they get to play the lottery as compared to the Coke machine. The Coke machine, as people, there's so many times when this shows up on, you know, some kind of a skit, the Coke doesn't come out. And so they're hitting it and they're kicking it. And that's, we don't want the dog to think that they're getting treats like a Coke machine. Uh We want them to work at it. Like they're, they won the lottery, which means they may have to do a lot of work to get it after they've gotten to a highly level successful level of, of um, success with it beginning it's a lot of treats a lot of treats very quickly okay okay that's good to know that is very good to know actually i'm not sure we've uh, really addressed that too much so yeah you can over treat your dog yeah right so you have to make sure that they are on the appreciated level with it as well as you are yeah Hmm. Okay, okay how about pilo erection scared or just glad to see me And this is from Dr. Karen London in a a reprinted article in Bark Magazine, which sadly is no longer being printed, raised some interesting questions about the meaning of different patterns of raised hackles or piloerection in dogs. First off, note that many people associate piloerection with aggression. Well illustrated in my search for photos of dogs with raised hackles in a commercial photo site. 
And this this particular uh, blog has a number of photos, which obviously I, I'm unfortunately unable to show you. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> all three illustrations I have in this post were labeled as angry dogs. However, piloerection is an indicator of arousal, not potential aggression. There are a lot of emotional states that can correlate with arousal, including fear, excitement, surprise, and some might lead to aggression, but not necessarily. Raised hackles or piloerection, goosebumps in people, by the way, are common in mammals and are caused by a contraction of the muscles that sit at the base of each strand of hair. It's an evolutionary uh, response of the sympathetic nervous system, which excites while the parasympathetic calms, and a good indicator that an animal is on alert and aroused. In dogs, it can act as a kind of supernormal sign stimulus. Size matters. And it can intimidate other dogs by making the one with raised hair look larger. Mm. Dr. London, PhD, CAAB, and the author of many of my favorite books, Treat Everyone Like a Dog. I love that title. <laughs> Wonders if the pattern of piloerection correlates with different emotional states and or future behavior. Often she observed a thin line of erected hair from shoulders to tail correlates with more confident dogs, while a broad patch over the neck and her shoulders, but no further down, correlates with low confidence. And there was an example in the, in the picture. Hmm. And it says this terrified looking dog was labeled as angry by the photographers on the photo site. Aside. Note its hackles are raised only over the upper shoulder area. Raised patches over shoulders and hips, but not connected speculates might correlate with dogs who are ambivalent. She finds that these dogs are often more reactive and more unpredictable. Of course, she makes it clear that there is, as always, a lot of individual um, variation. And again, there was a, a video. What we're lacking, however, is good research. Dr. London's comments are based on her observations. And she is clear that she's never seen any definitive research on the topic. I haven't been able to find solid research either, but perhaps I've missed something. If so, let me know. Oh, and this is by Patricia McConnell, incidentally. Oh, okay. Yeah. If so, let me know. Either way, I'd love to hear about your own observations and also to motivate us all to pay more attention to the patterns of raised hackles in dogs, especially looking for correlations between piloerection patterns and other visual signals like agonistic puckers versus appeasement grins, tail positions, Bodies either appeasing or erect and confident. And she says, I can't wait to hear what you're observing. Um, this, is, this is typical of Dr. Patricia McConnell welcoming uh, comments. And I've read at her site that she doesn't always get back to you with a response because of her busy schedule, but that doesn't mean she doesn't welcome your information. Okay. And then she said, uh, Maggie one of her, her border colleagues didn't run in the trial. And she said, I knew the sheep would be too much for her, but she helped immensely when we were charged with picking up the sheep from some of the runs and moving them to the rest area. She loved every minute of it. Here she is overlooking the field waiting to work. You might recognize the photo from last week, but I love it so much I'm repeating it. Look carefully at the background and you can see the handler at mid post left field and where the ship were. The sheep were set out close to where the person, Tiny, is standing at about 12 o'clock. 
And she said, that's the same course that Skip and I ran earlier. She also said that Maggie began to indicate that she really doesn't like to do it any longer. And she's about 10 years of age and she's now retired from active competition. She just wasn't showing the enthusiasm other than for that little bit of a, an easy, just move the sheep from here to there rather than the really hard work of doing it. So I thought that was particularly uh, and interesting. And what is Patricia McConnell's website again? Live, um, the other end of the leash. The other end of the leash. Okay. And she was discussing uh, uh, some an article from Dr. Karen London or something right. that Karen London yeah, had written yeah, right. about piloerection, which is the raised hair. Now, yes. what was that other word? I heard hackles. Hackles. That's what we refer, refer to. The part, the hair that raises are referred to as hackles. Okay. And, yeah. and different raised different areas on the body of raised hair could mean so- something to could mean. That's, different what, things. that's what we're, she's determining is that um, when it goes the full length of the back, it's more of a, a dog that is very assertive as compared to one that is less so. And I thought that was really pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that there, and there isn't, there, it's interesting because this is such a common sign that we see in dogs, but it hasn't really been studied, she said. You know, there isn't any good research. Um, and I'm raised, sure you can raised attest patches to that. Yeah, raised patches over the shoulders and hips, but not connected, might correlate with dogs who are ambivalent. And she signs that these are dogs are more often and more unpredictable. That's when there are two separate sections of hackles, mm-hmm. two separate sections, as compared to when I see Angie get excited. And I don't know whether she plans on being aggressive or she's just um, aroused, which she gets very aroused when she sees people out there that she doesn't think have any business being out there. And she gets a little line right down the center of her back where the hair raises up. Hmm. all the way from shoulder to, to butt. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that's just another reason why we need to pay close attention to our dogs and read their body language. Yes. And it's interesting she, uh, because I keep her trimmed schnauzer style, which means that she's due for a clipping job. Now, when her hair is clipped really short, you're not going to see that there because the hairs are really, hmm. yeah. I mean, or you may be able to see it if you're really looking closely with my Bouviers, who had longer hair, I don't remember seeing piloerection with them. Their hair was was a softer texture, and I don't think that they. I, I suspect that they had arousal. Don't misunderstand, but I don't remember being able to see hackles up with them. But I can yeah. see them with her for sure. That's yeah. a good point. Depending on the breed of the dog, and, and depending coat. on how you groom the dog. And their coat, their natural coat. Yeah. You. This right. is a sign that you may not be able to see, but it's super important to detect in your dog because, and because <laughs> your dog could be aroused and and be fearful. And, Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. And so, you want to make sure you can detect those in your dog. The other thing too, I think, is this. Uh, this goes with the whole. Um, labeling of the dogs as aggressive quickly absolutely absolutely without yes. knowing what's going on in the dog and remember pat miller says that almost all aggression is fear based right the one exception that she names 
is a bitch defending her, her pups. Mm, yeah. But otherwise, and this is something that people just simply don't grasp that the fear that the aggression is fear based. Totally. And, and that's something that's really important to recognize. So you don't punish aggression. You try to find the source and change that association so that the dog is not afraid under those conditions. Yeah. Right. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Okay. From the whole dog journal, booty scooting. Oh boy. (laughs) Booty scooting. This is something that is a very common thing to see dogs do. And we don't often talk about it. Heavens, heavens, heavens. (laughs) So this is by a a veterinarian, Dr. Eileen Fetcherick. It's in the whole dog journal, September issue. When you see a dog scoot, on his behind, wiping his bum on the rug or long. Do you think, gee, that looks like fun? No. (laughs) The first thing you think of, oh dear, he must be uncomfortable. Why do dogs do this? And what can we do to help them? Most often when dogs scoot, they are trying to relieve the pressure and discomfort that comes from over full anal glands. And what's in the sac? And I hear them referred to as glands and sacs. The anal glands are two sacs that sit within the anal sphincter muscle. If you consider the dog's anus as a clock face, the position of the glands are approximately 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. Observing the fact that dogs routinely sniff each other's butts when greeting, animal behavior experts speculate that the anal glands play a role in canine socializing. But today, as dogs serve mostly as companions to humans and live in our society, the glands appear to serve no purpose other than to annoy your dog and you. (laughs) Some dogs never have any trouble with their anal glands. When these dogs have a bowel movement, the passing stool presses on the anal glands and discharges some of the fluid from the glands, thus keeping the glands in a comfortable, not overfull condition. Problems arise when a dog's anal glands do not achieve any emptying with bowel movements. The gland secretions continue to accumulate with no outlet. When the glands reach an uncomfortable pressure, the dog will scoot along on the ground trying to relieve the pressure. Many dogs will lick incessantly at the anus with the same goal. When some dog's glands are overly full, the owner will periodically smell a foul, sometimes fishy odor emanating from the fluid that leaks from the glands. To make these dogs comfortable, the anal glands must be manually expressed. This service is typically provided by your veterinarian, a licensed veterinary technician, or a skilled groomer. With a gloved and lubricated hand, pressure is applied to the glands until the secretions are expelled through the ducts that have openings in the anus. This can sometimes be achieved completely externally, depending on the position of the gland and the angle of its duct. When this is not possible, the index finger is inserted into the rectum and the gland is squeezed between the index finger internally and the thumb externally. Normal anal gland secretions are liquid to pudding-like in consistency and range in color from beige to gray or brown. How often a dog needs his anal glands expressed varies. Once a month is not uncommon. Owners typically wait until their dog starts scooting again and then schedule anal gland expression. This can get expensive, especially if done with your veterinarian. 
If you are up to the challenge, you can ask your veterinarian to teach you how to express the gland yourself. This would save you a lot of time and money. I've taught a few dog owners how to do this over the years. It's not surprising me, most of them keep coming for our renal gland expression. I mean, let's <laughs> face it, it's not a pleasant job. And apparently it has an awful, awful odor. Wow. So check with your vet. Disease states associated with the anal glands include infection, abscesses, and tumors. Impacted anal glands get filled with dry, hard material that is difficult to manually express. Sometimes several days of warm sips baths are necessary to loosen up the impacted material enough to allow expression. For this, partially fill a tub with warm water and have your dog sit with his or her anus submerged for 10 minutes, two to three times a day. It's important to relieve impacted anal glands as these are likely to abscess. Anal gland abscesses occur when the gland gets infected and fills with pus. This condition typically appears as a hot, red, painful swelling next to the anus that breaks open and drains through the skin. Treatment for an anal gland abscess includes warm sits baths, oral antibiotics, pain medication, and medical process exams with your veterinarian. Anal gland infections that haven't accessed yet, abscessed yet are usually identified during expression. Infected anal gland secretions are often green in color and sometimes bloody. For in Will, uh, for this condition, your veterinarian will insert a tiny cannula into the anal gland duct, flush the, the gland with saline solution and, or an antiseptic, and inject an antibiotic ointment into the gland. Warm sits baths and oral antibiotics are important for this condition too. Anal gland tumors are typically discovered during the process of expressing the glands. When found, surgical removal of the affected gland and tumor is recommended. Some anal gland tumors are benign and surgery is curative. Unfortunately, malignant tumors carry a guarded prognosis for long-term survival. You may ask, why not just have the potentially prob problematic gland surgically removed? Surgical removal of normal anal glands is generally not recommended. This would be an elective procedure more for convenience than medical need. And there are risks associated with the procedure, including permanent fecal incontinence. The best way to try to help your dog avoid anal gland issues is to minimize the necessity of manual anal gland expression is to add fiber to your dog's diet. The idea is that the increased fiber will bulk up the dog's bowel movements, making them bigger and this more likely to put pressure on the and more likely to put pressure on the glands, releasing secretions on their way by. The easiest way to add fiber to your dog's diet is with psyllium powder like Metamucil or canned pumpkin. For small dogs, appropriate amounts would be a quarter teaspoon of Metamucil or a heaping teaspoon of canned pumpkin per meal. Medium dogs, half a teaspoon of Metamucil or a heaping tablespoon of canned pumpkin per meal. And larger dogs, three-fourths teaspoon Metamucil or two heaping tablespoons of canned pumpkin per meal. Dietary fiber will help some dogs for others keeping up with manual anal gland expression as needed is the only way to keep them comfortable. And something that I think is really important is if you take your dog to a groomer on a regular basis, some groomers automatically express the anal glands. I think there is a risk of making those glands lazy that it should not be done on a regular basis. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. If you do it too often, then the, the muscles, the glands get too relaxed. 
and they won't behave and won't do that on, on their own. Another thing that's, that's very important and I want to be able to add is feeding a raw diet, which includes raw bones, it's pretty likely, unlikely that they're ever going to have that problem. Oh, that, so if I'm already feeding a raw food diet, I don't necessarily need to add the psyllium powder or the pumpkin. That I think that's true. Now, I think pumpkin is a good addition. I think that it's worthwhile. Pumpkin can, uh, canned pumpkin can be good for diarrhea. It can be good for um, constipation. So it's a, it's a, it's a fine additive to, to you know, put into your dog's bowl. There's no question. I don't do it in part because the, the cans, I just have such, sm such a small amount of storage space here. And the refrigerator isn't very large. And once that can is open and she's only going to be getting a tablespoon or so at night, it just takes forever. So okay. I don't give it to her, but I, I, I recommend it on a regular basis. But again, I've had her for more than six years and it has never been an issue. And she's been eating raw meaty bones ever since I got her. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, this is uh, a very interesting topic that we are talking about right now. But like the uh, the reason for the hair standing up, we humans like to give these a whole bunch of different reasons, right? Like, mm -hmm. why is the dog scooting on the on the ground? Well, one of the things that I was told or just happened to think of is that it has worms, and there's yes, and itchiness yes, on the backside. I've heard of that also, and. If there are worms, the chances are that you'll be able to see some activity around the anus indicating mm -hmm. that their worms are present. So again, it's, it's, if it keeps up, it's worth a vet check and find out if uh, there are worms. Now, I don't treat Angie with any worm controls. I don't. I haven't ever since I've had her for over six years. I know that some people consider it a regular way to deal with dogs. I don't do that. And I don't think that there's anything, there's no suggestion or indication that she has any internal parasites or external parasites. So it's something that it, it can be that the dogs, if, if, it, if it's a tapeworm, you'll see little like rice-sized pieces around the anus. And that's when dogs have been infested with fleas, they can get tapeworm eggs from the fleas. And then they, they produce the, 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 um, the tapeworms reproduce in the, in the gut. And then you'll see these little segments pass out. But that means that there's been a flea infestation. And the other types of worms um, are actually worms. I mean, uh, that, that's pretty unreasonable. Yeah. Well, got to see that. Yeah, just I remember, another I remember, reason. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I got my, my Bouvier puppy, I had him out for a walk shortly after I got him, and he defecated, and there were worms in it, and it was like, oh, my good grief, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But puppies, right. all puppies come with roundworms. That they're, they're in the mother's, um, in the, they feed them to the fetus that come ready-made with the puppies and that needs to be addressed. So that's, that's not a, that's not a, an abnormal situation at all. It's very, very common. Yeah. And so the booty scooting, we have a reason for it because of the, to relieve pressure of the, from an overfull anal gland. Is that the only reason that the dog is booty scooting? It could be parasites. Yeah, it could be. I mean, but uh, you know, what if the dog just likes 
doing that? The chances are that's not the case. Dogs, there's generally a reason for something so that they would be coming that would make them more comfortable. And why would they do it if they didn't have a reason to seek some comfort? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. I mean, uh, is the gland issue or a parasite the only reasons why a dog would do that? Well, as she it's said, a, we don't have this, there's not enough research done on this yet. So, uh, so it, there may be other reasons, but that's uh, like the hair standing up, not enough research. Yes. Yes. It's interesting. We've talked about this before. Uh, it's only been like the last 15 or 20 years that much of any kind of research has been done on canines. For sure. I laugh because, you know, fruit flies had, we knew more, we knew more about fruit flies than we did about canines <laughs> and it's, it's dogs. Well, they've always been around and what do we need to know about dogs? Well, right. because we share so many things about our health issues and how we're put together, it has become more and more of an issue. And as dogs have become more family members and people are paying more attention to them, we're recognizing that they have different needs than we thought of before. And we're giving more attention to their needs overall, not just and not just annual vet, vet visits. Most people still don't do that and they should. Yeah. And the senior dog should begin twice a year. Um, but we're much more aware, and as this learning process has been evolving, many things have surfaced about our dogs that make us so much more aware of how sentient they are and how sensitive they are and how well they read us compared to how we read them. And all of this is, has been really quite new to our knowledge. I, you know, we just took dogs for granted when they were running around outside and they came home for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's what you should do with your dog. Right? They're family members now. And, and a huge percentage of people truly do treat the dogs as family members totally. and give them that attention, which of course is why we will often see 300 pound people with dogs that look just like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's true, but we yeah. but we are living in a remarkable time, I think, because we're learning so much about our dogs. And as we've just shown, there will be more research on the hair raising and the anal yeah, glands and stuff yes, like that. Absolutely. So this, yes. this is a great time to be living with our dogs. Absolutely. Now, here's something else about our dogs. Why are dogs' noses wet? Hmm. Dude, that is, that is a question that's been going around the world for a long time. <laughs> Okay, so this was written by Sandra C. Mitchell, a doctor of veterinary medicine. Ever been bumped by your dog's wet, cold nose and wondered why it always seemed to be that way? Or have you felt that your dog's nose was warm and dry and debated whether that meant they were getting sick? Here's everything you need to know about your dog's nose, from why it's usually cold and wet to what you should do if it seems dry or warm. When up and about, dogs will generally have very wet and cool noses, but when they're sleeping, it's certainly also normal for them to be warm and dry. And then there is often variation amongst individual dogs. So while one dog may always have a wet, cold nose, another dog may have one that is usually drier or warmer. That's why it's important to learn what is normal for each pup in your household. Why is a dog's nose wet? There are a number of reasons that have been proposed for why a dog's nose is wet. And, and it may be that science doesn't yet know 
the exact answer. <laughs> However, we do know there are glands inside a dog's nose that secrete a thin, watery material that's likely, that likely contributes to the moisture, much like the fluids found inside our own noses. noses. <laughs> this, this liquid wicks out to the, the nose surface, evaporates, and then helps to cool the dog. The nose pad and the foot pads are the only places dogs are able to sweat. So this cooling mechanism, along with panting, can be important to them, especially in hot weather. Additionally, our canine friends tend to lick their noses frequently, which, much like humans licking their lips, tends to keep their noses wet. This moisture may also help humidify the air as it moves into a dog's nasal cavity, which keeps it from drying out their, their respiratory tract and may even help prevent respiratory infections. Mm. Some people speculate that the moisture helps dogs retain scents, thus improving their sense of smell. A dry nose may be perfectly normal, and some dogs tend to have wetter noses than others. For example, very often, sleeping dogs will have warm, dry noses because they aren't awake to lick them. Since the amount of, moist of nose moisture will vary with humidity and throughout the day, a dog that just woke up from a nap at 2 p.m. with a dry, dry nose may have a no moist nose after a game of ball at 7 p.m. So in most cases, it's not automatically a sign of illness if your dog has a dry nose. Occasionally, a dry nose can indicate dehydration or fever, but this is usually not the case. If your dog is acting sick and has a dry nose, this may be cause for concern and you should call your vet. If your dog has a dry nose but is feeling well and acting normal, it should be safe to monitor things for a bit. Offer your dog some water. Try taking them to a human environment. Sitting in the bathroom with your dog, with your dog after running the shower is great for this. And monitor them for any other possible symptoms. Chances are good that things will go back to normal pretty quickly without a trip to the veterinary hospital. However, if your dog seems lethargic or isn't eating well, or you sense that your dog doesn't feel well, schedule a vet visit and mention to your veterinarian that you've noticed that your dog's nose is unusually dry. By the same token, if your dog's nose is crusty, raw, or has bleeding spots, you should schedule an appointment. Wet noses and dogs just seem to go together, whether they're prodding us for treats during the day or nudging us to get up for a walk at night. Even if your dog tends to have a drier than average nose, it's likely just normal for her. That, cool. like I said, is an age-old question that we've been wondering and, like these other issues, have been giving our own reasons for. Well, yes. I think it's this. I think it's that. <laughs> and it turns yeah. out some of them aren't too wrong. But, I, again, I like how <laughs> the answer is science doesn't yet know. Yes. And that's, that's, see, that's, that's indicative of what we were just talking about. That exactly. It's only been in recent years that we've been paying any attention to these things and we don't have answers for all of them yet. So it's, it's just an indication of how they have become so much more important to us that we're paying, we're observing, noticing things that we didn't pay much attention to before. And we, now we're looking for answers yeah. and, and we recognize that we don't have all the answers. We've got ideas. And we've got some studies that may or may not be taking place. And it's uh, it's just an indication of the times. Yeah, totally. And and like this one, it's <laughs> it could be this reason. It could be that reason. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it's so varied because dogs are so varied, just like us humans. You can't say that one thing goes for every human. Just like you can't say, you know, all dogs' noses should be wet. 
that's right. And we're talking in terms of because of the tremendous breed variations and certainly the brachycephalic dogs that you know how I feel about yeah. how sadly, how much they suffer with life. They have terrible breathing problems to begin with because their noses are squashed into place. And it's a whole different ballgame trying to evaluate the condition of these dogs because they have so many health issues, so many health issues from lack of being able to breathe normally to uh, the, the folds of their skin causing all kinds of bacterial infections to it's just the list goes on and on and their, on. Their mouths are too small for all of the teeth. Uh, yeah. Their eyes are popping out. And so they yeah. probably get dried out more often. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, and with, with the English bulldogs, they, I don't think any of them can deliver puppies naturally. I think they all have to have cesarean, but they also cannot breathe naturally. They have to use what's called a rape rack. Yeah. I was telling my buddy about that the other day. I, that is just amazing. That's it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's so it's crazy. It's, it's totally crazy. It looks, I saw a picture of it. It looks so unnatural. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Of course it's unnatural. You know, uh, the things we do. Hey, but like we said, we're learning more. We're learning more. We're doing more research. We're finding out more about these partners in life that we have. They're, yes. You know, they're yeah. no longer, I don't know. Can we call them pets? They're not really pets. I mean, your family members. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that's wonderful. All right. So a dog's nose should be wet, should be. Some dogs aren't going to have wet nose. And it's not probably not going to be wet all the time. For example, when they're sleeping, they're not licking their nose and yeah. the moisture isn't um, being applied to help it. So, yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. the example of how we lick our lips. Uh -huh. I mean, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Absolutely. It's, it's uh -huh. yeah. It's a part of the skin that needs moisture that needs to uh -huh. be somewhat moist. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Wow. All right. So we got through a lot again today on this episode. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five huge topics. Super important. Starting off with heartworm prevention from Dr. Judy Morgan. There are a bunch of factors to consider. One of them is the environmental temperature of where you live. Heartworms need mosquitoes and mosquitoes need temperatures above 57 degrees around the clock. So if you live in, say, an area that doesn't get to 57 degrees around the clock, you do not need to do annual heartworm prevention. Let's see. Next from Dr. Zazie Todd, finding moments of happiness. Savor every day's small moments with your dog and with everything else in life, as far as I'm concerned. There you go. It's, it's, it's easier to be happy. So, yes, observe and savor those everyday small moments. Next up from Patricia McConnell and with help from Dr. Karen London. Pilo erection. Why do dogs' hairs on their back stand up at certain times? Well, it's not always because of aggression. Let's just start there. It's not always because of aggression. So don't quickly assume that your dog is aggressive. Um, it's mostly from arousal, and that could be arousal of all sorts of different things. Fear, excitement, and surprise. Um, again, all aggression comes from fear. So let's Almost try to all. remember we have the exception of a oh, bitch with her babies. That's right. Thank you very much, Charlotte. But yeah, you need to know your dog. Don't give them that label so quickly. And then from Dr. Eileen Federick and the whole dog journal. Why do dogs do that booty scooting thing? 
<laughs> well, it turns out there's probably a good reason for it to relieve pressure of an overfull anal gland. And so those glands need to be expressed uh, regularly if there is an issue with them getting too full regularly. The way to solve that? Good nutrition. The ancestral. Raw diet, the raw bones. It's it's the raw bones that really make the firm stools. Mm. Okay, so oh, you that's... know the the the, the meat with, with Angie, for example, her dinner does not have raw meaty bones in it. That's when she gets her protein source and her vegetable and fruit combination and her supplements. She gets a raw meaty bone at breakfast. So it's that raw meaty bone uh, that produces a stool. It's very firm. Her other stools are firm, but they're they're not chalky firm like the stool that is a result of the, the raw meaty bones. Yes. Okay. I was going to quote, uh, I think it was Dr. Ian Billinghurst. The, you, you, they need to be eating the ancestral canine diet. There you go. <laughs> and then finally from Dr. Sandra Mitchell, why are dogs nose wet? We, we, I would love to sit around a family dinner and debate that. I, that just seems like it'd be a great conversation. But uh, the quick answer is science still does not yet know. We're still learning. There are could be a couple different reasons. Um, you know, like our lips, it's natural that it needs to stay moist. Um, it could help with the uh, cooling the dog down since the dog is not able to sweat. Um, it could help with the smelling things. Um, I think that's I think that's an important uh, element. Yeah. 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 That's pretty interesting. I can't wait to learn more. I can't wait to we learn more about this and more research is done. Are, aren't dogs amazing animals? Yes, they are. They really are. Uh, so on that note, Charlotte, do you have any last words for us besides the great ones that you just gave us? Yes, I have to have to get my folder. <laughs> Put me on hold. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll remind listeners, you can email us at any time. We'd like to hear from you. We want to hear your questions, comments, or concerns about your furry friend. Email livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. Okay. So there is proof that dogs never lie about who they love. Money can buy you a fine dog, but only love can make him wag his tail. Kinky Friedman. There you go. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog, with Charlotte. Isn't that cool? Check out all the content brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Listen to the new show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite films. Spoilers abound, so scary movie fans beware. Watch no evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all these shows wherever you find podcasts.